Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, Scheherazade. Have you heard this? Uh, I have no idea what Scheherazade is. Go on. <laughs> you know what actually shows up in the movie Aladdin? It's part of the It Never Had a Friend Like Me song. Um, but <laughs> That's hilarious, by the way. If you were going to say, what do you know about Scheherazade? I probably, my first place, even before you said it, was going to go right to Aladdin. Yeah, yeah. So this is because I'm apparently uh, racist against um, (laughs) Middle East. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Actually, it it may have gotten more play in the West uh, ultimately than it did in the Middle East, although it is, of course, of Middle Eastern origins. And so what I'm talking about is uh, the Arabian Nights or uh, 1001 Nights. So Scheherazade, she's the wife of this king or the new wife of a king. And that's a real problem because this particular king doesn't really trust or like women. Um, so what he does is he marries a new queen every day, and then that night is their wedding night, and then they, he beheads the queen the next morning. Ah. This, this will keep him from getting hurt. Um, sort of. Or, well, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. Ugh. Um, so what Scheherazade does is that night, their, their, their wedding night, she begins telling him a story, and she doesn't finish the story. And so the next morning, he's like, I can't behead you. I need to hear the rest of the story. And the next night, she finishes that story and tells him the beginning of another story. But she doesn't finish that story. Ah, so, that, that woman deserves a career in a uh, network television. Yeah. <laughs> so then she, she, she keeps this up for 1,001 nights. Uh, and at the end of this period, uh, she's like, that's it. That's the last story. And by this time, she's had several children for him. Um, and also, her storytelling has changed him. So he, he says, no, I, I, I can't kill you. I'm no longer that person. Your story's changed me. I'm a new individual now. Um, congratulations. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, well done. Yeah. And Not in fact, dying. he's like, you know, slaps himself in the head like, you know what? My brother's doing the same thing. <laughs> so he heads over to his brother and he's like hey uh and he tells him a thousand one stories (laughs) i don't know i i I imagine in compressed form somehow and his brother's like that's great let's not behead women anymore um (laughs) but one of the things that's really interesting about this little tale is that the king in in retelling these stories uh omits scheherazade she is she is left out. Like he sort of owns the information oh. now. And oh, oh wait. He he like totally plagiarized Scheherazade's stories to uh take him to his brother. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so it's this sort of thing where like he kind of appropriates that technology and then he changes the world with it. He like makes everything better. And and, and the story is very much in that light where it's like Look how the king is now great, and how the how the king spreads greatness because of what he has. And, and there's a good scholar named Jack Zipes who talks about the way Walt Disney appropriates the fairy tale tradition in the same way of sort of taking mm-hmm. all these like traditional female stories, um, and then cop- finding ways to copyright them. And and Disney okay. is born right. Like, but anyway, uh, I'm bringing all of this up because we're, we're interested in talking today. I'm going to talk to a couple wonderful scholars today about tech paternalism. Um, tech paternalism yeah or so, paternalistic so, language in the tech industry ah okay so so i feel like um my instinct is is we are we are going down a path of isms 
conversation. So, so before we get into that, and I'm all for I'm all for a goodism. Uh, before we get into that, maybe give me a, uh, a a guide for idiots on on what is tech paternalism. Yeah, I'd say the the simplest way to think about it is simply this kind of uh, hyperbolic, often progressive often sort of uh, revolutionary language that tech companies use about what they're doing in the world. So, you know, bring everyone together. Don't be evil. You know, uh, you know, make the world a better place. Revolutionize democracy or something like this. Ah. Um, oh, and- oh, oh, well, all right. So I have a term for you. Good. Let's hear it. It's called boil the oceans. That doesn't sound like a great idea. No, no, but that's that's in in the tech world, the concept of a a boil the oceans idea is is a an idea that is meant to fundamentally change something enormous. So right, it, it's something that when you have the idea, it's such an astronomically huge idea that it is going to change everything. And that is a um, you know, there's the number of uh, boil the oceans ideas that people kind of walk in with into various incubators and venture capital firms and things like that. I mean, that's that's de facto. Um, we we like ourselves a uh, a good boil the oceans idea. I mean, think of Uber's not just like making taxis a little bit easier to get. Uber is uh, Uber is changing the nature of uh, urban transportation, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've I've I'm all for it. So you, we call this tech. Paternalism? Wait, what do we call it? Yeah, paternalistic language. Uh, and while on the surface, in some ways, it seems just good, right? Like, don't be evil. What could be wrong with right. that? Um, part of what I'm going to speak to these uh, really wonderful scholars about is uh, how is this a bit of a problem? And also, maybe, how does it start? Hmm. All right. Well, I am, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. Um, look forward to hearing it. Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. Today, we have a very special couple of guests. I'm joined by Marion L. Britton Postdoctoral Fellow, Dr. Halcyon Lawrence. Hi! And Visiting Assistant Professor at Valparaiso, Dr. Liz Hutter. Hello! Um, And I thought uh, that maybe I'd let the two of you talk a little bit about what we're here to talk about today, because I realized that if I sort of preempted both of your talking by mansplaining the thing before you had a chance to say it, that... (laughs) The, the podcast might implode with irony. <laughs> we wouldn't want that to happen. Right, right. So if you, if you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you're here to talk about, which I think is an extremely important issue. Oh, yeah. So uh, Liz and I have been um, really, oh, I guess we should start by saying that uh, Liz and I taught for about two to three years in a computer science program. Um, where we worked with students who were developing applications for their uh, final uh, capstone project. 
and as part of that development, they were involved in the creation of a lot of written documents, a lot of presentations that accompanied those final projects. And what we started to recognize um, was this particular kind of language that emerged around the way that they talked about technology, the way that they described their applications. Um, and I think for a long time, we just sort of wondered what that was all about. Um, it's really just, I think, in the last year that we've been able to understand it to be paternalistic language, um, but more problematically, that they are part of a discourse community that, um, that, that talks this language very fluently. So our students um, talk about uh, their, um, their applications and their technology in ways that suggest that they're going to save the world. <laughs> Um, and we can well imagine that's a, that's problematic in itself. So I don't know if, if Liz has anything to, to share more about that. Um, no, I think that actually uh, kind of covers it quite well. Um, and I can say for me, you know, some of the things uh, that we had been noticing in some ways weren't all that different from um, other student writing. Things were what I perceived were vague or generalized. Um, or just not explained well. But I think what we really come to understand is, um, as Hal was saying, that this is something that is particular and particularly problematic for a discipline where um, they are creating um, artifacts that, uh, I'm using air quotes, kind of improve the lives of, of, of the public. Um, so the stakes are much um, higher, I think. And, um, and the source of, um, their uh, thinking um, about the the way they think about their technology, I think also what we're realizing is pretty deep, um, that it's not just uh, a lack of familiarity or a lack of experience, it's kind of inherited values and knowledge that, that they bring into and bring into even as undergraduates um, and then into, and gets reinforced in their in their major. Yeah, we're, we're increasingly interested in figuring out where students sort of get exposed to this, um, this discourse community. How early in their education do they begin to, is it, is it sort of, are they being exposed through media first and then through sort of formal training when they get into CS programs and coding? But it'd be really interesting to figure out uh, how they come to acquire this language. And, and so I'm, I'm interested in the two of you sort of talking about these two phrases that you said that I think maybe aren't common. In fact, when I started reading up on this for this episode, I realized that I actually wasn't quite aware what paternalistic language was. I thought because of the word paternal that it would be just sort of patriarchal or misogynistic or something like that. And this actually seems like something that's related but to the side of those things. Yeah, so I think I actually I think I like the at one point when we were working on an article for this, we talked about it as like a benevolent form of paternalism because it comes across in the guise of um, that uh, the, as computer scientists, they have expert knowledge um, and they know things that um, technical things that the sort of average lay person wouldn't. And so part of their responsibility as a professional is to kind of communicate that expert knowledge to um, to those who don't ha don't have um, that experience. So uh, part of the paternalism, though, is, is the way they communicate that, which is an assumption then that their audience, um, they dumb things down or they make what 
what I think is more problematic, they essentialize who their audience or who their users are um, of their the apps and things that they're developing. So it becomes a very imbalanced um, form of communication, sort of top down. Um, and I think that's part of the paternalism is that they, as the computer scientists, sort of know best, um, which is sort of the language, uh, the article that we often turn to for this concept of technological paternalism is um, Julia Williams' um, discussion of it. Um, and the idea, again, that engineers, by virtue of their um, educational status, experiential status, are in a position with a lot of knowledge, but again, it gets communicated in a way that reinforces um, that they know best um, and that the public is sort of at the mercy, maybe, of what they they know and can do. Um, they're powerless sort of without the apps that the computer scientists might be developing for them. What's interesting, I was just rereading the, the Williams article, which is fairly dated, it's, I think 2004. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> I didn't realize, I was maybe on my third or fourth reading, that, that she actually sort of was addressing this from a technical communication class. Yeah. And then I thought, why didn't I figure that out earlier? Because quite often it is when we're asking our students to write and to talk about technology do we begin to hear that language manifest itself? That that when you're in a, a computer science classroom um, and everybody's speaking the language, I don't think that that sort of stands out to you. Um, but that we are sort of poised in technical communication um, where we're asking our students to take fairly technical concepts and communicate it in non-technical ways to non-technical audiences. All of a sudden you begin to see this problem in the you know, in translation. So there are a couple of patterns that we've noticed uh, in the way that that um, gets talked about. I, I think Liz did sort of mention sort of those um, grand narratives mm -hmm. um, that we that we hear about the technology. But right alongside that is always this oversimplification of a problem. So that our students are often um, not prepared to or trained to engage with the complexity of, let's say, a communicative issue. And so it's very easy for them to think that their device is going to solve this in one step. And and I was sharing yesterday on um yesterday on Twitter that a student was talking about the fact that um that this app was gonna solve democracy. And in some ways, <laughs> I knew it was, I knew what they were saying was tongue-in-cheek. But in other ways, it's incredibly disturbing, especially given sort of the time and place that we are yeah. um, as a society, that, that we could think that an app would do that kind of work, which says to me, either one, we we don't understand and our students aren't engaging with how uh, nuanced problems are. Mm -hmm. um, and that technology introduces problems of their own. Um, and so there's that, not just sort of the grand narrative, but also that oversimplification, what we term as just sort of being reductivist, um, thinking about problems, things about, you know, relationships and communication and, and a whole host of complex things that just sort of get reduced to an app. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of a part of that grand narrative, too, is that the technology, they sort of it's it's whole it's all or nothing. So they sort of set up these um, without what we're going to provide you, your lives will be um, 
are, are primitive and, yeah, yeah. and backwards <laughs> and inefficient. Um, and that the, so they sort of, yeah, create almost artificially create a, a need for this and their language re- is creating a need that maybe doesn't literally exist. Um, mm-hmm. And as Hal was saying, it kind of, they miss all of the complexities. So, um, you know, rather than maybe looking at a problem um, or, you know, it's not that the, the current way of doing something is wrong or completely inefficient, but they set it up as if it is in order to posit that, well, their app is now going to, yes, make everyone's lives um, easier. And that almost is always it. Um, even sort of mundane, everyday decisions have to be made easier by technology mm-hmm. or more efficient. It's always about easy or more efficient. Yeah, we've had students who sort of, well, I think going along with sort of creating this tension or some sort of choice that that users have to make is that they often then discredit well-established working solutions. So we um, we worked with a team a couple of years ago that was working on an application um, for users who were deaf to communicate with uh, users who hear. Um, and what was unique about the application is it, it was facilitating two-way communication, which is often rare, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about that. But, but in setting up the problem, quite, on a couple of occasions, the students sort of wrote about the fact that the, the, the users who are deaf who currently um, communicate in primitive ways mm. so that they write with you know, pen and paper on, on a notepad. Um, It really is kind of like imperialism. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's also just such a lack of understanding of community, um, in this case, the deaf community, about accepted practice. Um, And this notion, to go back to that idea of paternalism, this notion that technology is going to do the saving of this Mm -hmm. um, so that it's almost, it, it then becomes a lens by which they're able to sort of diagnose all all problems you know i think they do see um their daily lives as just being you know difficult that in some ways you know people need to be saved and actually more now i'm thinking about it how in your description there and and the colonial or the imperialism example there's almost an infantilizing i think of the user as if this um person who is deaf they could they're in they're dependent um and that they couldn't possibly be able to advocate for themselves or to find a way to um, navigate a particular situation. Um, and that the only way they can is if, yes, they have this app that is going to help them uh, yeah, speak to um, and communicate with and have someone communicate back with them. Well, that's, I think, one of the reasons why Williams uses the term paternalism, because it does come from that Latin term, father. And she actually talks about this idea that what is set up and she actually sees that part of the problem comes through the codes of ethics of these um, these engineering um, fields, is that it's set up in the way that it's described as a responsibility of the engineer yeah. is to provide a solution for society, to be able to sort of mitigate the ills of society, the problems of society by their, through their expertise. And so these codes of ethics are sort of setting up this, this it creates this othering, yeah. which is at the heart of uh, you know imperialism is that is that very thing you know that 
that we have the authority, that we have the expertise, that we have the knowledge, and that your lives are going to be made um, easier and, and and less problematic by our expertise. Yeah, like uh, so, like IEEE, they t- and other kinds of engineering or scientific uh, professional scientific societies, codes of ethics talk a lot about the public good. Um, and so it's sort of like the in the hands of the scientist or the engineer, you know, what's at stake is is the public good. And they don't seem to. And given that, which all, uh, you know, is a well-intentioned, um, they the students um, um, or the, there's a misperception of what that means and that it is to kind of pick up a point that Hal mentioned previously, that that's more of a reciprocal relationship is that um, the computer scientists or the engineer to serve the public good, they need to uh they need to talk with the public and to interact with the user and to understand what good means for them and for their particular um, uh, context um, or culture or history and so forth. And so when they don't do that um, and they start making um, kind of essentializing um, uh understanding of their users is where that paternalism then becomes manifest. And so where that paternalism manifests. So all users, you know, all women suddenly, you know, need X or all deaf persons suddenly need, um, need Y. Mm-hmm. Um, Williams actually suggests as well. She, she actually picks up that. It's a very short article. She picks up the article by saying, perhaps this is one of the reasons why we can't get engineers to be able to talk in, in non-technical language to the public um, because there's not one an explanation that their work needs to be explained or justified or, right, you know. Right. It's actually like the Bosworth memo where they discuss the, the Facebook thing. Okay, yes. Where he discusses the basic mission of Facebook as a de facto good. Yeah. And so all things that emerge from the program are only judged in relation to the de facto purpose of the program. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and it seems like, too, another pattern we've noticed, um, more in terms of how students, this is maybe more of a classroom issue, um, but probably something that, again, they've inherited, is that their ability to identify a problem, um, instead of starting with the, uh, mm-hmm. the user or the audience, and again, in what they do, they start with the fact that I can make an app. And by starting from the technology, it sort of then imposes um, the need. It, it sort of, I don't know, there's probably a word for it. It generates the problem that mm-hmm. may or may not actually exist. Um, but because they can do it or think they can do it um, and can innovate um, from the point of the technology, what drops out is the, um, the nuance of the user or the, even the necessity um, um, on the part of the user for this particular app. One of the things that you and Darren actually might find interesting is not uh, uh, we've also we've noticed what Liz just talked about, but we've also noticed the scale at which the problem has to be pitched. Yeah. Um. Almost as a way of justifying the need to spend the time developing the app. So it's always about masses who are going to be impacted, even if it's just a smoothie app. I mean, masses, <laughs> uh, like, you know, lives of millions hang in the balance because of smoothies. Smoothies, yeah. Um, and so one of the challenges, of course, is um, the difficulty we, we find of having, I don't know if it's a, a computer science thing, a program problem or just a, a generational um, issue, but the ability to be able to 
understand that you are not the user is problematic for students. The idea of being able to imagine an audience uh, other than themselves is, is sort of the starting point of the problem. And so therefore, if this is my need or my experience or my want, then all others must have that same need and experience and want. And that's, you know, we spend our time trying to get our students to talk, even if it's just about talking to a user that's not like yourself or talking to people about issues, you know, people who aren't like themselves, just to get perspective. And that's why user testing becomes this aha moment for so many of our students when somebody says, I won't use it or I don't like it or it just won't work for me. They're flawed. Yeah, <laughs> and that yeah. they discover that after they've, you know, gone through a prototype of the app. So even when the idea they um, when the idea originates, that they again don't it doesn't originate already from the user. It's again, they've sort of imposed it on the user and then discover, yes, that this actually isn't very isn't very useful. Um, so it's sort of their process of development of the technology um, is is kind of inverted too, uh, yeah. which reinforces the paternalism. Uh, so if they had started, uh, and as instructor, that's sort of more of our emphasis is to uh, asking students to be more critical, um, to think more critically about who their end user is, even when they're conceptualizing um, the application, for example, that they want to develop and doing research to identify the need um, uh, beyond, again, just, you know, it's possible uh, to really think about what is a, a meaningful um, problem that, f which could benefit perhaps from a technological intervention. Mm. And so this is a question I have for both of you, because it strikes me that that both of you exist in if there is a particularly fertile place for considering or confronting or evaluating or changing this uh, this sort of discourse, that the two of you are there in this room. And, and part of the reason that strikes me as meaningful is because it strikes me that in these rooms, and I've seen this more at Tech than I have at other colleges I've taught, the students come to recognize themselves as a professional in these classrooms. Like you, you'll meet a freshman who will say, I'm an engineer. And you're like, you're an 18 year old. <laughs> Slow down. Slow yeah. Down. Right. But, but that like, it's actually in these spaces where they come to self-identify within these discourse communities and begin to define themselves in exactly these ways that, that you are seeing as like someone who both defines the public good and serves the public good via, you know, technologies of mass production and this sort of thing. Um, but does that mean that your classrooms are the places where they're getting this? Or is are your classrooms just the place where, like, these things suddenly become visible? And either way, is it possible for classroom practice to shift this discourse? Or are, are you just more kind of observers of something that it is essentially concomitant with all of industrialism and, and seems unlikely to change. But as an immediate response, I think it's, yes, I think the, in our classrooms, because we are of our humanistic training uh, and our uh, emphasis on critical thinking, I think these um, assumptions um, are being exposed. Uh, and unfortunately, in our case, uh, with the students we were working with um, at Georgia Tech, for example, they're juniors and seniors. Um, and and so it, we can only assume that it's, yeah, I think we're still thinking about when, when um, at what point do they start internalizing um, these narratives, for example. 
but I suspect it's, you know, even before they choose, um, choose to choose to major in engineering. Uh, but I, I think also the, their college and their, uh, the way they're recruited, um, the way there's an emphasis on innovation in their field um, and acquiring key internships and co-ops. I think that, again, they hear this uh, or read it all the time. Uh, so when they get to their junior, senior capstone experience, you know, they're demonstrating what they have perceived or, or have come to believe is mastery of, of um, what their discourse does. Yeah. yeah, like I said at the top of of the talk, I, I often wonder, I often wonder what their first introduction to that discourse community is. I wonder if it's a media thing. I mean, there's so many ads that, we were looking at the ad recently for the for the device that... Um, uh, oh, could read your internal could thoughts. Could read your internal thoughts that's be, being developed at the MIT labs. Um, and that ad, you know, is just so, so similar to the kinds of ads that we see when technology is being ruled out, you know, it, it follows this particular pattern and it's always about sort of the improvement of life and, you know, all of those things is, um, that, that never even leaves you questioning unless you're critically thinking, you know, what is the ethical implication of this? What you know? What are what is what are the pro the possible problems that we can think about? So it it almost it almost always feels like a pitch, and I, I I sort of wonder about the role of media in that respect as introducing our students to, um, that discourse community, and if that in it itself, um, attracts them to the field in the first place, um. So I don't know how early in, in the process that happens for them, but I, but I would be interested particularly, for example, in looking at how three-year-olds and, and four-year-olds who are sort of getting elementary school education and learning how to do their first coding, what they're told and taught, because I tell you, they speak that, that language very fluently by the time they're 18 and 19. Well, I think about Iron Man, right? Like, Iron Man came out in... Geez, I want to say 2007, 2008. And so that's the students right now who are 22. That came out when they were 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that seems almost exactly this discourse of I was a bad inventor and then I got ethics and now I'm a good inventor and you know I'm good because I'm blowing up the bad guys. Yeah. We, um, uh, yes. too, at one point looked into... Um, Another kind of like example of what our students, I think it's the hackathon. Was that what it was? Hack? Oh, yeah. yeah. They yeah. Love those. Mm -hmm. And so sort of these, even those opportunities, uh, there's a, a complete emphasis on what the technology can do and what they can do to, again, demonstrate um, expertise Still. with the technology. Mm -hmm. And they're rewarded for that, too. Mm -hmm. um, so there, so even at that stage, the focus is all on the technical expertise again and capabilities, rather than thinking about its usefulness or the ethical implications of what they are, um, what those ethical implications might be if this, you know, application were to go to market or something like that. So yeah, yeah I just think at many levels in their um, curricula and extracurricular. It's just that's all they hear and see. To answer, to answer the question you asked about where do we intervene, I do think the technical communication classroom is is a great space for that intervention. And Liz mentioned that we had the opportunity 
to be able to do a class like that that was actually integrated into a CS capstone course, which is uniquely different um, so that students aren't sort of coming to you out of context of the development of the, the work that they're doing. Um, and so they have an opportunity as they're developing to do user research, to go user testing, to get feedback, to, to iterate. Um, that is not to say that if a class like that didn't exist, that the technical communication classroom couldn't still be a place of intervention. Um, I think the other place of intervention would be um, classrooms like history and science of technology. <laughs> um, I, I feel like this, I, I feel, I don't know that our students understand the history of technology and therefore yeah. aren't critical about um, their very own discipline. Also, they're not necessarily required to take those courses. They aren't. Yeah, ethics courses. It's just not front and center in a lot of these engineering um, degrees, and it's it's problematic. And I think another opportunity is, no matter which of those classrooms, is to think more about collaborative teaching. Because I think, uh, and, and I, uh, I think in our experience, having that pairing of a computer science instructor with a technical communication instructor, um, was we, re we reinforced each other's um, sort of expertise. But sometimes you read about, you know, there, there is, a, I think, a, a growing call for, for example, more ethics, more attention to ethics in computer science. But part of the uh, response to that or the concern is who's going to teach those ethics classes. Yeah, yeah. And if it's just another computer science professor, um, again, it may just be perpetuating what they, too, have inherited and have not yet um, critically examined. So like a collaborative relationship with a, um, with a more humanities, um, uh, with a professor with a humanities background, particularly communication, technical communication rhetoric, paired with um, a science um, instructor, um, I think is another way to go. Uh, so like, yeah, and that could take many forms um, in different classrooms, but, um, but I, I don't think the teaching of this, uh, of I think the undoing of paternalism is sort of the work of many. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that's a place where the collaboration can be really beneficial and model for students a particular kind of inquiry, way of inquiring. I also wonder, I've noticed on occasion that the, the community themselves can actually do this work hmm. when they have not produced this device or this app. So when we do final presentations and we open it, so the teams are pre presenting to other teams, you can, when they ask, when this audience who's technically minded begins to ask questions, you see that they're starting to think about issues um, and really start to put their colleagues on the spot for things that them, they themselves are, yeah, are guilty of. <laughs> but they're seeing, there's a distance, I think, because they haven't, you know, they haven't been the ones to do the coding of this particular project, but all of a sudden they're able to connect it as users themselves and they start asking really critical questions. But we also see that in industry as well, where you're starting to find other tech companies sort of being critical of, of other tech companies as well. And so I, I wonder if there isn't a rule for the industry itself to begin doing this work. Um, because they understand the technology in a way that humanists may not. 
Um, and how do we begin to engage them in that kind of conversation, I think, is, is a really important question. Yeah, and especially when I imagine there's there's a lot of money and there's a lot of interests involved. Like, uh, if you have Uber and Lyft competing for market share, then they have every reason to offer maybe a disingenuous critique of, like, eth- I mean, and this but is actually... But a critique, nevertheless. <laughs> right, and this is actually, I, I, I picked this too much random. This is, like, Lyft, literally, this is, like, they get on this high horse about how Uber is, like, you know, this kind of morally bankrupt company. Yeah. But they're they're almost identical absolutely in how they operate as companies absolutely. and as like apps. Yeah. Same business model almost, isn't it? Yeah, I, I do think that there's there may be a rule for, for sort of self critique. I remember um spending an entire semester working with a, a team that had developed an app that would scrape uh data from the Atlanta police departments. Um I'm beginning to wonder if that was legal. No. Yeah. Just, <laughs> well, they kept saying this was publicly available data, was their argument. And what the app would do, um, they designed the app to allow any user, once they stumbled into a high crime area, that the app would alert them. This seems problematic. It does, doesn't it? And, yeah. I, and you got that in what? Five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> it took me an entire semester. And every time I brought it up, their argument was that this is publicly available data. And I said, but you are turning that into information that has value. Yeah. You have determined what is high crime. And, you know, I asked a lot of questions. And until the day of their presentation, and did they sort of show this app to their colleagues? And their colleagues started to ask questions like, so what happens if I stumble into your high crime area and still get, you know, um, and nothing happens or it alert doesn't go off, but I get robbed? Who do I hold responsible? And questions like, well, what is a high crime area? I was about Who to gets say, to determine those? I mean, the, the kinds of areas that get policed more frequently generally are suffering from de facto segregation already. So really what the app I, th- I think would find more than anything is just massive racial bias like a map of it yeah the students weren't prepared at that stage to engage with those kinds of questions and so like liz says quite often what they're able to do is articulate the problem from the perspective of a solution Hmm. um so here's something that we can build and therefore this is the problem that must be solved with it Yeah, and that's a great example of, too, of how the students are not able to see unless with, but with our train or with our prompting that that their app is going to exist sort of in an ecosystem of other values (laughs) and beliefs and uses um, that are going to complicate um, the way it functions. And, uh, and that's what they're not able to think about or anticipate um, early on in the development stages um, of of what they're, uh, or what, with our prompting, we are trying to get them to think of that. But typically, yeah, it becomes just a technological challenge um, and it works or it doesn't. Um, and they're not thinking about sort of the life beyond or, again, how it interacts, how that app's going to interact with other, uh, yeah, cultural, economic, et cetera, contexts in which it exists. So, And that's what we discovered with the um, with the the device uh, to facilitate communication between users who are deaf and users who are hearing. Liz, you want to, do we want to talk about that? I know that. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just about to say, it sounds like these students really need to listen to a podcast (laughs) that 
involves yeah. you know, using stories to explain how tech has implicit narratives. Yeah. But, uh, Where I would they that find would... that kind you of know, podcast? It's so funny you should ask. <laughs> But yeah, if you want to take a, a, a second yes. to, to talk about this one particular study, and then we'll we'll ask our, our trademark question. Yes. Yes. Okay. So there's a, a case um, that came up about two years ago. Um, the two students at the University of Washington had developed a glove that was supposed to transliterate uh, sign into speech. Um, and the, the glove actually got national attention. They won, I think, Ten thousand U.S. dollars as a prize, and there was a lot of press. I do remember seeing this. Yeah, yeah a lot of press. It was not the first glove of its kind, um, and it was also not the first glove of its kind that just did not work. Where the deaf community says, "I do not understand what this glove is trying to to achieve," um, and part of one of the things that came out of it, the the University of Washington Department of Linguistics wrote um, a really interesting Latin response. Um, to their communications department about the kind of press um, that that the students received about this glove. And one of the things that they said is that um, they were concerned about one autism, that is that, they, that there was no understanding about how the deaf community worked. Mm. Um, they were concerned about cultural appropriation because there was no evidence that um, the deaf community was consulted and benefited from this device. Um, and what we saw ultimately was the, the latter didn't talk about this, but what we saw ultimately was this paternalistic um thinking um that here's this thing that we can do, never mind it had been done three, four times before and failed miserably um and that we were gonna just build this device, and there's nothing for example in its um in the account that actually talks about any sort of communication with the deaf community any understanding of the deaf community. And yet, you know, this this invention sort of rose to national prominence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's happening at all kinds of levels. It certainly is starting at our colleges. Um, I think we see it um, most evidently in, in the media. Um, but it is, it is a, a problem of tech. Yeah, and uh, another piece of that, too, is just the lack of understanding of, of how American Sign Language worked, you know, just, yeah, yeah what, as a language, um, a and language. how that, yeah, how different it was from English um, wasn't even um, taken into account um, in that, yeah. The sign allow, the other thing I would say, that example, to answer the an earlier question about kind of an intervention or another place for intervention, um, I think that case uh, makes or raises the, um, put some burden on journalists, I think, to, uh, and journalists and how they report these technological yeah, um, devices. Yeah. And they tend to celebrate, again, they te- the journalists, I think, sometimes just celebrate um, the innovative angle and aren't asking um, yet the critical questions that we are asking in the classroom. But if those cla- if the journalist sort of took the lead um, in posing some of those critical questions, or might even at the level of you know public discourse, there might be some changes in the way um, we thought about um, the capabilities of our of our expert technical knowledge. That's a great point. Yeah, and and so I'd like to ask both of you then, um, and maybe I'll set it up this way: uh, paternalistic language, apocalypse or utopia. Utopia being, you know, a 10, Apocalypse being a 1, 
where do you see this going? Is this paternalistic language is a sign that uh, essentially the basic industrial technological project uh, forever reiterates the basic need for its own production in a way that seems to save the world, but actually does things like possibly via something like climate change destroys the world? Or uh, is this a moment like, you know, Me Too and Time's Up where uh, our very ability to have this conversation in an open and comfortable way at a major tech campus uh, is a sign that like, this visibility is meaningful and that the, these technologies can better serve the community and, and maybe we're headed towards some kind of utopian, you know, techno future or somewhere in between. You can pick any number. If I've explained that right. Yeah. Oh, or, yeah. Or re-explain it differently. I mean, I think it may be it's sort of like the more you think about it and talk about it, the more prevalent it seems. So I think in terms of, there must be like a chirotic moment, I guess. I feel like we are, there is a lot um, in the news about um, technology, again, improving the, like that this narrative is, is replicated in many ways. So I think our intervention is timely uh, and that we can uh, affect um, a lot of change. But I, I think it's also like the iceberg metaphor. I feel like we have yet to discover just how deep um, uh, the, these beliefs and values and how longstanding this narrative is uh, to tackle. So we're kind of chipping away at what is bubbling to the surface right now in our classrooms. Uh, yeah, I don't know how. Like that's you have to give a number though. He, they, yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> that's our shtick. Oh, oh, it's a number. I'm. Uh, oh. This is. I, I was talking to Hal about this before we began, and I was like, "Wait a second, like." totalizing male-oriented tech discourse that forces everything into a prefab. Like, that's our podcast. That's, like, that's, that's all we do. Some binary choice. But yeah, you can, you can resist the number and thereby es escape paternalism. But, uh, or you can pick a number to accede to power. I, f I feel like I'm doing rubrics with, like, student grading. <laughs> I'm like, is it my criteria clear? <laughs> But. Well, well, maybe I can say this, and maybe we, you and I can f figure out where we where we fall along that continuum. Um, I wonder if I wonder if one of the reasons why we're wrestling with this, Liz, I I suspect that this is not the first time in history that this problem existed. Um, <laughs> I think it it looks different, um, but I can't imagine that the automobile wasn't sold as you know it, it talked oh, yeah. about in a particular way, or that uh, people in the manufacturing industry didn't sort of have their own kind of paternalistic discourse. I think, and one of the reasons why I'm sort of torn about answering your question is, I think the the challenge of tech is about the numbers, the masses, how quickly it proliferates um, at, at a rate that is, that is harder to contain and to measure. And um, so I, I, I think that if we look back in history, I'm, I'm sure we would find evidence of similar kinds of issues. Um, but the reach of technology, I think, is, is so ubiquitous that the scale of the problem seems um, more challenging. 
And so I'm prepared to sort of step back in my own um, investigation of the problem and look to other industries mm-hmm. um, that might provide us with some insight into perhaps how that might have been reined in or how or what it, what became of it. Um, so I'm going to be reaching out to some of my uh, historians, my historian friends to sort of help me think about that problem. Um, so I don't, I don't actually have a number for you. No, that's good. Down with, down with journalism. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I am not overly, overly concerned from the perspective of I am on the ground doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said yesterday, it was this aha moment of, okay, I cannot retire. If my student still thinks that this app is going to, um, solve democracy, then, you know, <laughs> I clearly have work ahead of me. Right. Um, but when you think about sort of influencing, what what is the impact and the influence of um, changing the thinking of one programmer um, and one coder? I, I I don't know. I you know when when really they may have been indoctrinated into this kind of or introduced into this discourse community from a very early age. And not only the scale, or scale in another way, is the rapidity with which um, devices and applications and technological services are produced, mm-hmm. that that alone kind of, can I don't think you could ever get ahead of that. Um, uh, and to try to, and if to have that as a goal may actually be sort of working against too, uh, that, yeah, I like the idea of taking a step back. Um, and I don't think engineers, computer scientists, science is what we've sort of been emphasizing. But for me, I'm curious to, my other interest is in um, health and medicine. And so I'm curious to see how that field, which has, you know, technology is affecting that. Um, but it's different too, because the end user of those um, services and devices are other humans. There's a different uh, application. And so I'm curious to see, you know, how a different scientific um, field and different scientific industries might, uh, if, I, if, if there are similar narratives, for example, um, that, are, that are in play. And, or if not, so. Wow, this this was absolutely lovely. And I, I feel like we could have done this like three times as long. So we'll, we will have to do this again. <laughs> okay, we've been invited back, Liz. <laughs> oh, good. I guess that's a good sign. That is a good sign. <laughs> so are yeah. you going to rate us then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I'd love to do it on, on either like the medical community or or also like the the kind of uh, technological speech communities and this kind of stuff. I've been I've been reading a lot on Alexa and children and <laughs> you know uh, what it means to have this little like uh, interlocutor in the household who controls your speech. Yeah. 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 So wow, thank you, thank you again so much. Oh, and, awesome! Uh, can't wait to have you on again. Great. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. All right. Okay. Well. Wow. That was some that was some erudition. <laughs> I thought so, and, and I was there. Right. Um, <laughs> I like the idea that erudition would be harder to spot when you're in its presence. Yeah. For me, I, I it's kind of like osmosis. I just like to kind of sneak up on really intelligent people and then let some of their intelligence flow to me. Right. And then take it and then use it to share with uh, your brother about <laughs> about how you can help make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Nice. Are we are not... we Shaharazading? Are we Shaharazading their interview? That's, that's a, I don't know, man. 
Like, as you might have heard in the interview, I was going a, a little insane during the interview trying to figure out whether... <laughs> uh, whether how, not, how not to be evil? Yeah, well, yeah. Right. <laughs> whether right. paternalistic language in tech is something that you can get outside of and have a sort right. of objective reaction to, or whether it's actually just a sort of de facto language in the same way that you're not outside of language you're you don't get to be outside of a particular tendency in language all you can do is have a sort of intimate but critical relationship with it right no i mean i think that's right i mean i think if you throw in like 20 percent virtue signaling along the way I think you, can, uh, <laughs> you can somehow end up morally on the right side no i mean all, all kidding aside um no, I, th I think it's really, it's really interesting to hear kind of where the conversation went. I, I, I would love to add a few things to this. I think it's really interesting listening to people who are coming from the scholarly side talking about something that um, from the industry side, you're just like, well, this is why they're doing it. <laughs> you want to know why people speak in... Uh, in uh, kind of boil the oceans language, why they're paternalistic is because that's the difference between selling for fifty million dollars and you know seven hundred fifty million dollars, um, which is a large difference for anybody who doesn't want to do that math. I mean, I'm not a math scholar, but um, <laughs> no. Well, but uh, so speaking speaking of complex math, do you want to do a, a little apocalypse utopia? Yeah, let's light the fuse. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, one of the things that, like, jumps out at me about the conversation, I think when exploring kind of the origins of where this kind of concept of, you know, paternalistic language, I mean, I'm struck by this, this question of, is it, is it born into the, the culture at a, through the studies, through kind of pop yeah. culture? Is it, you know, I, and to me, I... I don't know where ultimately people start adopting it. I do know where it's essentially industrialized. Mm -hmm. um, so generally speaking, if you think about what a company is trying to do um, when it's raising capital to, to fund its startup idea, its startup technology, um, it's needing to explain why this little thing that in, in some cases is nothing. I mean, in some cases, it is a PowerPoint presentation and a couple people in smart looking jackets. Um, they're trying to explain why this thing is going to be why somebody should throw $500,000 at them in a very early stage. Again, if they're just presenting a deck um, and maybe a couple million dollars for essentially nothing. And what they get in exchange for that is it's still a fairly small percentage that will become an increasingly small percentage as that company sells future percentages of their country because they'll be of their company because they'll be selling percentages of percentages. Mm -hmm. um, but why $500,000 or why a million dollars is a great bet right now. The idea of selling something modest and saying, you know what we can do? We can, we can improve upon the mousetrap by 5%. No, 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 no. We're going to make... We're going to make the perfect mousetrap, right? Like we're going to, we're, in fact, we're going to rid the world of mice. We're going to rid the cosmos of mice, right? Like that language starts becoming de facto mm -hmm. in the way that you're going to be able to essentially bring in the resources to make your tech entrepreneur's dream come true. And 
that language then gets filtered down through all these other like formal and informal ways of telling tech people this is how you communicate what you're doing. What's interesting to me about this concept of paternalism, which which is kind of the feeling that I have anytime I hear kind of a really, really intelligent, really nuanced conversation about something that where my own experience of that exact same phenomenon is, is so quotidian, is so prosaic in the sense of like, oh yeah, of course I hear that language all the time. That's the language that you use when you're trying to get somebody to give you a lot of money. Yeah. Right. And that's the language that you tell other people to use if they want to get themselves a lot of money. I feel like I'm I'm that person who's like being interviewed by some, you know, national news media saying, Well, that's just the way it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's how business people are. So Right, what, exactly. What, what kind of number would you give this then? Oh, thanks for getting me back on track. <laughs> um you know, there was this um MIT scholar, gosh, and I'm going to get his name wrong, but check our show notes. Um, I'm not even going to get his name wrong. I'm not even going to attempt it. But did this really interesting work in um, in empathy in business. Um, and again, check our show notes for his name and for the uh, report that he did. And he worked actually out of India to do this really interesting empathy study, where if you really worked on connecting with your your consumers and connecting with your customers and connecting with your various stakeholders before you make a decision and creating systems by which you're connecting them, you you make you you come to better business outcomes. Right. And the study that I saw, I think was done in 2012. And if you look for essentially kind of how that concept has echoed out in in various kind of business theory ways and in various business practices, it's essentially non-existent. Like it's a really interesting study on this on this concept of of really listening and really understanding and really connecting and then building your technology to fit and building any new business to fit. And his core ideas have essentially fallen by the wayside, even as the concept of empathy and um, design thinking and these other kinds of ideas that you're going to take consumer feedback into account have really exploded. And to me, those, those, the, the idea of kind of true empathy and then really this kind of tactical level design thinking where you're like, well, before you finish designing that web page, go make sure that it like, you know, is legible to the people who are going to use it, um, has kind of taken off as kind of business theory. And so, so that's a long way of kind of getting back around to this idea that even with an understanding that you sh maybe should listen first, I don't know that I see, before you produce something, I don't know that I see that really transforming or changing in the current way that we develop business. So to throw those two ideas together, we're always going to want to fund something that, that fundamentally transforms and ideally extracts a lot of value out of these um, social systems and social structures and um, commercial systems and all those kinds of things. Um, I don't know how we get away from that. You know, the, you, you don't, you know, I, I joke, like if you want to, if you want to create something like useful and cute, go start an Etsy store, right? <laughs> like right. if you want to extract massive value, um, that's when you have a startup. And when you want to extract massive value, how much attention do you really pay to, you know, the people that happen to be living on the land when you go there? Right. So that's a, that's a, gosh, so that, that all sounds very negative. 
And yet I also feel like we've seen so much of this energy of changing the world and of being mission oriented and at the same time, you know, do good by doing well or do well by doing good, I guess is the term. You know, it has fundamentally improved access to things. So yeah, there's some do-gooderism. There's some, you know, implicit Do, do you want me to do my numbers first? I'm getting there. <laughs> I could I could do it. I could do a number right now. I can do it. I've just been left out of this conversation. I want to own it. <laughs> I want to plant a flag on this damn conversation. Yeah. Where Scheherazade told how many stories? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm only at 506. Um, yeah, so I'm going to give the idea. It sounds terrible to say I'm going to give this idea of paternalism and you know, paternalistic language. Uh, giving it a high number. But I, what I will say is I believe if we can frame it a little bit differently without changing the podcast, I'm going <laughs> to say that um, the idea of feeling like you have a responsibility to change the world and that, yes, you can err on the side of kind of paternalism, imperialism, a little bit of white man's burden in there, Um but that you have a responsibility to affect the world and fix things is better than alternatively sitting back and saying like, nope, this is how it is. We can't do anything about it. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a six recognizing that there are real problems to it. All of which, you know, I think were well represented in the interview, but that I also think, um, yeah, I think don't overcome the idea that really taking ownership of the world and really taking responsibility for trying to make it better, I think it's still probably a, a better thing than the alternative. All right. That was, I, I apologize. I apologize. Go cut, <laughs> cut all of that. Cut all of that and just say six. I'm about to disrupt, innovate, synthesize, and advance our podcast. Nice. You could also exploit it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give this a 1 and a 10. Oh, wait. What? This is like Schrodinger's cat of a... Yeah. Uh, well... <laughs> if I look at this, it'll change. The purpose of our podcast, when you get down to it, is to make complex technological issues legible to a broader audience by acting as intermediaries on the, on the side of marketing and storytelling and narrative. Right? This is sort mm -hmm. of... Uh, our essential function is people bridging ideas that that we have some access to to uh, a broader audience. That's why we thought a podcast would be a good format for this. Right. The reason that we do Apocalypse and Utopia at the end is because... Or Utopia. Or Utopia. It's yeah. generally mutually exclusive <laughs> for most of our podcasts. The reason that we do that is because it is a level both at which the ideas are accessible and seem to suddenly attain their meaning in a way that is legible, mm -hmm. and also because that is the language, that is the implicit language of the tech community. So that, that there are ways in which, I, I, I read an article a little while back about languages of love and how you and your wife will have a different language of love and how you have to recognize that what you think is communicating love might not be what your wife is thinking is communicating love, something like this. This paternalistic language is the language of the tech community right now um, mm -hmm. in a broad and, and, and meaningful and deeply problematic way. But the reason that we do Apocalypse or Utopia is because that's a way to access the language of that community and the way that community self-identifies. Um, mm -hmm. 
And it's problematic, but you don't get to even be in the conversation if you don't speak the language of the community. So this is why I'm saying one or 10. Whatever direction this leads, uh, it will lead in a big direction because that's that's how the entire ideas format themselves. These aren't, as you say, they're not $50 million ideas. They're $750 million ideas. Um, And so the options for me aren't anywhere in between. They are only one or 10. And in fact, like this is the apparatus. This is the 110 apparatus for me. Hmm. I mean, it sounds a little bit like when John Kerry voted for the war before he voted against (laughs) it. But, uh, no, I buy that. No, I'm, you know, all kidding aside. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've only made this podcast worse. And- <laughs> no, I, I actually think it's been, it, it, it's been profoundly, profoundly important, I think, having your voice in the room. Um, <laughs> or leaving your voice out of the room. Yeah, well, I mean, that was even minute. more important, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know um, whether we've solved anything on this one. I think it's important in some ways. Uh, I don't know that there is a way to solve it. In fact, I think maybe even saying that you have solved it would be a, a, a perhaps paternalistic. I know. That's, a, that I, I, that's where I went, too. It's like, wait a second. Uh, I think what you can do, and I think uh, what we did in the interview and, and what we'll seek to do continuously in this podcast, is you can look at particular case studies of it, and you can think about you know, is, is, can empathy be a real practice? Um, right. And, right. you know, and, and can a podcast uh, perhaps kind of influence, entertain, and interest people about these very issues, you know? Not, not if people don't rate us. Yeah, yeah. So, listeners. That's right. <laughs> rate us on your, uh, on your, on your podcast uh, listening uh, app of choice. All right. I think we did it. Uh, by not by I not doing it did, but, yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's gonna go live anyway because we don't have that much time in our day all right brilliant all right i'll talk to you later talk to you later man love you love you too bye, bye.